I'm Kay Page, a writer, researcher, and now the co-host of Swindle's Search for the Truth. I am David Swindle, a former senior investigating officer who has worked in numerous high-profile investigations, murder investigations, cross-border investigations, and dealt with the most complex and tragic cases you can imagine. On Swindle's Search for the Truth, we will be talking to families whose loved ones have been killed in the UK, Spain, India, Goa, Mexico, and other countries. conversations start with an opening, an introduction as it were. And as it was made clear in the trailer of this podcast, this podcast is meant to be just that, a conversation about the crimes and cases with which David Swindle is now involved. The goal of this podcast is to create conversations and to draw you, the listener, into discussions about the featured cases and to ask you for your help in solving them. Along with the assistance from forensic, historical analysis and true crime experts, audience inputs are also going to be important. And over the next few months, we are going to be examining tragic, unresolved or controversial cases, along with input from victims' families. We will be hoping to help them get justice, progress their cases, get answers and ultimately the truth about what happened to their loved ones. Today's episode is our conversation starter, an opportunity for renowned former murder detective, case reviewer and crime expert David Swindle to introduce who he is, what he does and how we got here. Listeners may already know about David Swindle's work from his appearance on various true crime programmes and also forums like CrimeCon as well as other general media coverage. In fact, it's CrimeCon where I first met David. Regardless of how well you do or don't know David, we thought it would be a good idea to set the scene with our very first episode discussing who David Swindle is and what he does now. And this will probably not be our only Q&A. So as the podcast episodes move along and the podcast progresses, please don't hesitate to contact either myself, Kay Page, or David Swindle himself on the social media platforms to put forward any further questions you would like answered. Since I was a child, I've dabbled and dithered about what I wanted to do, and while my attention crossed into various career paths, I never imagined myself joining the police force. That being despite my natural interest in all things mystery and crime. And yet I know plenty of people who have. But still, the question I always wonder is, why do people join the police force? It was therefore the very first question that I wanted to ask David Swindle when we sat down to record this interview. As a senior science technician at the young age of 22, there were no challenges or future left for me in that field. So I applied for and joined the former Strathclyde Police in March 1977. I certainly had my challenges and never looked back in regret. I would describe the police as the best career that anyone can have. It's so varied and so challenging. Starting off as a uniformed beat constable, and after four years moving into the CID and working my way through the ranks, mostly in the CID, I've had an exciting career, ending up as a detective superintendent, SIO, running many high-profile murder inquiries and major investigations, and in the current role as independent reviewer, crime expert, 
and investigator, I thrive in using my skills to help families whose loved ones have been killed abroad. I have been doing this for 10 years. I retired in 2011 and it's 10 years that I have been running my own business, helping families and trying to get answers for them. It seems to me that there are certain careers that undoubtedly represent what we'd call vocations. The kind of jobs that people tend to do for life. The kind of titles that you carry with you forever, even after you've left the job. And from past conversations with those in the police force, policing seems to be one such example. In order to be a police officer, it's the kind of career that you really have to want to do, with motivation seeming to be key. And it hardly seems like the kind of career that you fall into on accident. I wanted to know what made David Swindle tick and what it was that motivated him to do what he did and ultimately what he still does. What's my motivation? Um, Well, the challenge, thriving in challenges and never giving up. For example, the Peter Tobin case, where I formed Operation Anagram to lifetime-laying Tobin and look at what else he's involved in. And ongoing cases abroad uh, where there's no answers and some of these are cold cases that have been going on for some time and families are just trying to get some sort of progress. Victims, being able to help victims, families of victims of homicide in their search for the truth. Just to be able to get some progress uh, is good for me and gives me, I would say, the buzz. And the buzz in the police and the buzz of what I'm doing just now, more so in the police when I was running major investigation, the buzz of getting a result, like the phone call about a DNA result or a suspect has admitted a crime or an important witness has been traced. I can imagine that for some people it's the perfect career. But what actually does make a good murder detective? There are so many attributes that make a good murder detective or a good CID officer. I suppose I could summarise a few as someone who's tenacious and does not accept the obvious, continuing to test and push the boundaries. Someone who's trustworthy and dedicated to his team, his colleagues and his bosses and the organisation. Someone who's an inquiring mind and an ability to research, manage and prioritise information. Someone with good interpersonal skills that can interact at all levels of society and adapt to diverse situations. Someone who thrives in challenge and keeps pushing and never gives up. And something that applied when I was in the police surrounded by so many professional and loyal colleagues and my team just now at Victims Abroad, someone who's totally dedicated to get answers, truth and justice for victims. At various points during his career, David Swindle was a Senior Investigating Officer, or SIO as you've probably heard it called in various policing TV shows. But for those unsure, what exactly is an SIO? It's worth briefly covering it. According to the College of Policing, The senior investigating officer leads on specific crime investigations. They are accountable to chief officers for the conduct of the investigation. They manage the investigative response and all resources associated with the investigation. They develop and implement strategies, procedures and systems that underpin the particular investigation and ensure the management and assessment of threat, risk and harm are always considered. 
So while it's obviously linked to being a good detective, it actually requires its own set of skills. And there are probably numerous detectives that never become SIOs. So I wanted to know further to what it takes to be a good murder detective, what kind of skills does a good senior investigating officer need? I suppose a, a senior investigating officer uh, is a manager and a manager who is able to get the best from his team. I always likened myself as a football manager. I was only as good as my team. And when doing team briefings, I always opened them up by saying that. I would say, I don't have the monopoly on ideas. Everyone here is part of the team. Please speak your mind and contribute your thoughts. One thing I always say, if you don't ask, you do not get. So never be afraid to push and ask for things. I would say a good SIO, Senior Investigating Officer, needs to have skills of a detective and the ability to lead, influence, trust and delegate to others. Needs to be a strong leader who gains respect of his or her team and motivates them. And good interpersonal and negotiation skills. Empowerment and delegation is important, being able to trust others and defend decisions of the team. I'm a great believer in using every resource available, including the best available experts, some of whom will be speaking on our subsequent podcast episodes. Since I first started my original podcast, The White House Farm Murders, in 2020, there have been periods of time where my mental health has greatly struggled as a result of my immersion in that particular case because of the nature of the kind of issues I was dealing with. At times, it massively affected me, and that's coming from someone who is dealing with a case years after the fact, not having to deal with any first-hand sources or images, and as someone who is entirely removed from the investigation. I can't even begin to imagine how people in the emergency services, but particularly the police, because of the kind of situations they deal with, handle the impact that these cases must have on them. How do they switch off at night, given what they deal with, seeing the worst that humanity has to offer? During his 34 years in the police, David must have dealt with a number of unimaginable, horrendous and complex cases, including some of the most horrific in Scottish living memory. The case for which David is undoubtedly most known for is that of Peter Tobin, a Scottish serial killer with three confirmed victims, Angelina Kluck, Vicky Hamilton and Dina McNichol. Although Peter Tobin is said to be linked to many more. In 2007, David was also the SIO for the investigation into the Glasgow airport terror attack, for which he received a chief constable's commendation for the work that he did. I asked David to tell us a little bit more about those cases and to outline how they influence the work that he does now for victims' families, particularly in trying to get justice, find the truth and get answers. The very fast-moving, massive cross-border investigations surrounding the Glasgow airport terrorist attack in June 2007, when I was working 24-7 running such a massive high-profile case, is something I will never forget. The Glasgow airport terrorist case and my creation of the Lifetime Lining Operation Anagram to track and trace the activities of serial killer Peter Tobin a life and career defining events, events that I will never forget. An interest in serial killers is ever present in the true crime world and so it's unsurprising that there's already a lot of information online 
regarding David's creation of the UK-wide Operation Anagram. And for those wanting to know more, there are an abundance of documentaries and various other articles about that case. But in a nutshell, Operation Anagram was a nationwide bid to uncover any and all other crimes of Peter Tobin, particularly a search for his as-of-yet unnamed other victims. Unfortunately, no other confirmed victims were ever found, but it did help in the creation of a timeline regarding Tobin's various movements and relationships, something that could be used in future situations. Considering the work that David Swindle now does on cold cases and case reviews, I wondered how this work affected how he approached them, and if his experience with Anagram forms part of his victim-focused approach to investigations. Voltaire said, To the living we owe respect, but to the dead we owe only the truth. If someone lost a relative as a result of homicide or in suspicious or unresolved circumstances, they would, rightly so, expect the best support available. And sadly, particularly when that happens to a British citizen in another country, they do not always get the same high level of investigative and all-round support that they would get if it happened in the UK. Throughout my police career, particularly during Operation Anagram, I utilised various phrases which I have now incorporated as my David Swindle Crime Solutions and Victims Abroad Business Strap Lines. The search for the truth. Leave no stone unturned. Victim focus. It's all about families. And as regards historical cases where we should continue to review and continue to look back. The passage of time should not be detrimental to the detection of crime. For me, as an outsider, David Swindle's victim focus is something that I found refreshing and it undoubtedly sets his post-policing career apart from many others like him. Using the skills he gained in the police to assist those in need is admirable, and I wanted to understand the approach he takes in a bit more detail. His victim-centred approach is something that David developed while in the police force, and was strengthened during his work on the aforementioned Operation Anagram. But in recent years, it's an attitude that David has taken even further, creating his own organisation, Victims Abroad, which aims to provide multilingual, expert support for those affected. When I first started talking to David Swindle about this podcast, I was astounded to hear about the lack of support that Victims Abroad receive. And in my naivety, I assumed that the British government would have provided linguistic, review, investigative and financial support for families of British people killed abroad. But my position was swiftly corrected. Based on my own research, conversations with David, plus the abundance of social content that David and victims abroad share, I now know that's not true. In fact, the 2018 Deaths Abroad All-Party Political Group, a group of parliamentarians formed of various MPs from across the party spectrum, found that the support provided is actually pretty lacking. To me, that's absolutely shocking, especially when I stop and think about the reality of it. I love to travel. It's one of the things that I most enjoy. And while I always pay for travel insurance, I've never stopped to consider what would happen if something went horribly wrong. There are also close relatives of mine who spend weeks abroad every year. And I can't even begin to imagine how unbelievably hard such situations must be. Around the UK, there are British citizens who are facing this very reality. 
Those who've lost a loved one as a result of a homicide or in other unexplained or as of yet unresolved circumstances. The loss of control and sense of helplessness you must feel anyway doesn't even bear thinking about without adding grief and frustration into the mix. And that's without even thinking about the idea that you've lost someone and no one is doing anything to help you. For many of these families, they've quickly had to become their own advocates, processing grief and devastation while also, somehow, pushing the investigation forward. I asked David Swindle to outline what this looks like in reality, if it truly meant that those who'd lost a loved one were having to drive their own investigations, dealing with the costs, stress and complexities involved in such a situation. Yes, Kay, uh, this issue about the lack of support for killed abroad victims' families has been the subject of considerable debate uh, in Parliament with the APPG in 2018. This issue has been going on for a number of years and it is something that hopefully will be resolved. However, families just now are grappling and trying to get answers and driving their own investigations and paying out substantial amounts of money uh, for legal fees and translations in our countries. Local British consular staff are very helpful, providing support for families. However, sadly, there is no formalised, holistic British support for families or friends of victims killed abroad. And that will be a theme which features in the various cases that we will be discussing as this podcast series progresses. The UK government's stance is that they do not interfere in or try to influence investigations in our country. English police forces provide support to the coroner in the collation of material, but can only become involved if the country where the death occurred requests such UK police support. Scotland does not have a coronial system. We hope to have an episode with a former English coroner speaking about the role of the coroner in deaths abroad and in general. The question I have been asking for a number of years is what does the UK government do when investigations into the death of a British citizen in our country are seriously flawed? A human being has taken the life of another human being. That victim and their family deserve the best support available to help find out the truth and get justice. But sadly, a lot of time, the support provided is not the same high level of support that would happen if the death occurred in the UK. The circumstances that David just outlined were one of the main reasons why I was so grateful to have been given the opportunity to work on this podcast. If it was my loved one, I'd want someone like David on my team too. And podcasts have the power to share people's stories. Each year, hundreds of families are abandoned, forced to find their own ways of navigating legal systems abroad that they don't understand. Left without legal support, financial support, and faced with extortionate translation costs. And that's without stopping to consider what you do if you're then unhappy with an investigation's outcome. At the time of recording this episode, I know what the goal of the podcast is. I know what we are looking to achieve. But I still had questions for David about what more we can do to help. Sadly, some families have remortgaged their houses and taken out loans to pursue justice and pay for lawyers, translators, accommodation and travel in other countries in their efforts to obtain justice. 
and find out what happened to the loved ones. Some families, it is too much for them. And they just accept things and do not pursue justice and answers further. Justice should be about victims, with victims' families having their say and being able to present what they consider as evidence or information worthy of consideration by the courts. Our team help with an affordable victim-focused approach. We provide multi-legal support to help families better understand legal documents and try to develop mutual liaison between the family, local lawyers, law enforcement and judicial authorities in our countries where the deaths occurred. Basically, what our multi-skilled and multilingual team do is conduct a review of all available material and provide the victim's families and their lawyers with independent review reports in other languages for submission to the courts and police forces abroad. These independent reviews are backed up by multilingual social media appeals for information. Check out some of social media posts that K-Page and I have been sharing and Victims Abroad have been sharing and you will see an example of the type of ongoing cases that we are helping with and the campaigns, appeal campaigns for information. We help the families with poster and media campaigns in the countries where the deaths occurred and any information obtained is shared with the local police and the judicial authorities. Our team and the victims' families, we also request and attend meetings with the local police and prosecutors and liaise with local British consular officers who can make requests for information but cannot by their remit become actively involved in anything perceived to be influencing or questioning an investigation out with the UK. We use simplistic methodology including buying website domains in the victim's name and setting up associating dedicated social media platforms. Without social media, families would be struggling to push for progress and there is an element of success in reaching potential witnesses. The distances involved are horrendous for families to grasp, but with the power of social media, there is some respite and some help and some opportunities to try and reach people with information. As you will see, if you look at some of the cases that we're involved in and some of the cases that we'll be speaking about as the podcast episodes progress. The term independent review, as well as reports, is one that I kept coming up against in my research for this podcast. And while I was able to find generic and somewhat useful information on the internet, I wanted to know more about what those terms really meant and specifically what they mean in this context. UK police forces have dedicated cold case units and conduct routinely reviews of unresolved cases. There does not appear to be such an accountable system in Spain and other countries where deaths that we are involved in happened. As episodes progress, myself and other experts 
we'll discuss in more detail how reviews are conducted. What I did in Operation Anagram as regards looking at the life of Peter Tobin was looking back historically and reviewing with other police forces in the UK, reviewing unresolved homicides, missing person investigations. So the whole issue about independent reviews and cold case reviews is a very interesting uh, process, uh, which does feature a lot in true crime uh, programs. So I'm hoping that we are going to have an episode specifically, or maybe two episodes specifically, dedicated to that. Suffice to say that family-focused independent review reports and submissions compiled by our team working with local Spanish lawyers acting on behalf of killed abroad victim Kirsty Maxwell have not been progressed. There have been various recommendations that a, our team, the family, the family's lawyer have made regarding evidential opportunities which have not been progressed. Families and friends of victims are the victims' voices. Their submissions and requests for all evidential opportunities to be investigated should be progressed. However, as will be discussed in the next few episodes regarding the Kirsty Maxwell case and other cases we'll speak about further down the line, this does not always happen. Over the coming weeks, you're going to hear about a number of such cases. And hopefully you'll be playing a role in us helping the families to finally get answers. In particular, there are two cases that we are going to begin with. Two young British lives lost in tragic unresolved circumstances in different unrelated incidents in Spain. Two families fighting for justice and answers. The murder of Scott Craig Marlon, Lorette de Mar, Spain, in May 2012, and unresolved death of Scott Kirsty Maxwell in Benidorm in April 2017, are two of the tragic cases featuring on the new Swindles Search for the Truth podcast. Follow us, subscribe, and listen to Craig and Kirsty's families and the experts talking about these tragic cases which should have been resolved. No one can ever imagine how difficult it is to cope emotionally with the murder or unresolved death of a loved one, let alone the added upset of injustice. Evidence has been lost, however, there are still evidential opportunities out there which you the public can help with. Please listen and share information about these tragic cases, about families fighting for truth, justice and answers. The first case we'll be exploring over the next couple of weeks is that of Kirsty Maxwell, a young woman who was killed in Benidorm exactly five years to the date of this podcast, the 29th of April 2017. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear from both me and David discussing the case, as well as Kirsty's parents. We will also be revealing new evidence that has never been released before. In the next two episodes, we will be discussing the flawed investigation surrounding the death of Kirsty Maxwell on the 29th of April 2017. It was five years ago. While she was on holiday at Palma Apartments, Benidorm in Spain, evidential opportunities were lost. However, Kirsty's family cont continued to push for further inquiries 
to be made regarding witnesses we believe are important to establishing the truth about what happened to Kirsty that fateful night in Benidorm. One of those witness appeals that has featured a lot in the media and a TV documentary that was done about the case was for a woman in Palmer Apartments block where Kirsty died with a group of Englishmen. This woman has never been traced or interviewed by the police. She was spoken to at the time by the police, but they never took what they call a declaration or we would call a statement in the UK. Significantly, initially it was thought this woman was not Spanish and not English. And that was the information that the family and her team were provided with at the time by the police. However, it has now been confirmed from other sources that this woman may be English. More information will follow in the next few episodes. Until then, check out www.kirstymaxwell.com and the social media and media coverage which will be happening before the next episode as it will be five years today. So please follow the Swindle Search for the Truth with Kay Page and I and our various hosts and contributors. To keep up to date and see what's happening with Swindle Search for the Truth regarding the live investigations, the new experts, subscribe to the podcast and click on the various icons and access the various social media platforms. There's going to be a lot going on.